Dr. I at the window. Welcome to the show, and um, I am alone today. My partner, Dr. Joe, is traveling, and um, if all goes well, perhaps she'll be able to tune in later in the show, but um, her presence is here, and um, I will do the best I can to keep things rolling. I have to say something about the violence, everyone. I am hurting because of the youth violence in this community. And it's not just Columbus, it's all over. And I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's everyone's problem when our young people are not safe on the street, when we're not safe on the street, or when we go into an establishment. Um, And so I am praying for all the families that have lost loved ones uh, from whatever kind of violence it was. We must take back our community. Nobody can do it but us. And when we step out uh, into the streets, we shouldn't have to worry about gunfire or someone uh, coming up from behind us, stabbing us or something. We have to be able to live together. And um, I don't know what we can do about it, but I really wanna put it on everyone's heart and mind to look at the people that you influence, your family, your neighbors, the people that you work with, and if they appear to be unstable or overly angry or just not themselves, call it out. Call it out before something dreadful happens. And that's all I'll say about that today. We have a show today that's very unique. And we're going to talk about entrepreneurship, which is something that is very dear to my heart. Um, I come from a family of part-time entrepreneurs who never put all their eggs in one basket. They had an eight-to-five job, and then they had businesses on the side. My dad was a chauffeur, but he also had a catering business. And my mother was a social worker, but she was the first black Avon lady in Evansville, Indiana. And they both hustled all the time and took us with them. And by the time that we were 10, we had to have had businesses too. My brother had a lawn care business and it was a push more back in the day. And I took care of children. Even when I was 10, I babysat neighbors next door. And then when I was in high school, doing writing papers and editing papers. So we all had to contribute. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the state of African-American entrepreneurship. And we have some experts that are going to be joining us momentarily. But I want to read off some uh, stats on what has happened to black businesses post-pandemic. Um, A report from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, and this is about 2020, showed that the number of active business owners fell nationally by 22% from February to April 2020. Black businesses experienced the highest decline 
with a 41% drop compared to the 17% drop recorded by white business owners. And keep in mind, these are the ones that responded. The report digs into several data points to try and understand the root causes of such decline. They looked at COVID-19 infection rates, business locations, paycheck protection program data, data on small firms' financial health, and they found that there was a high correlation between locations with high infection rates and the high presence of black businesses. A low number of companies, 15 to 20%, received PPP loans in areas where black businesses were mostly concentrated, what I like to call zip code discrimination. Finally, most black-owned businesses lacked strong bank relationships, which meant that they most likely entered the pandemic in a weaker financial position than white-owned businesses. And I know this to be true after spending over 20 years in banking. I know that there are different practices and policies based upon what neighborhood your business is. And the best customers get the best service. And the best customers are those with large checking account balances. So having said that, I would like to introduce you to my friend, my sister in the coalition of national coalition of 100 black women, central Ohio chapter, and just a delightful person, Ms. Jill Frost. Hi, Jill. I am. Can you hear me now? Oh, yes, 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 yes. That sounds familiar. Can you hear me? It sounds like a, a commercial. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. So uh, <laughs> thank you for having me. And uh, as we were waiting to come on, um, my better half, my smarter half, my daughter told me to mute my phone if I could unmute quickly. Clearly, I couldn't unmute quickly. So I was trying to follow instructions, but I, I messed up. But uh, it's a pleasure to be here this this afternoon. I'm so glad you're here. And um, tell us a little bit about your background, Jill, because you seem to be the woman for all seasons. Oh, I hope I am. Um, so I, uh, for the past 10, 12 years, have owned a communication and outreach firm. So I work with nonprofits. I work with small business, um, helping them to get their message out, helping them to identify audiences and craft messages to best reach those audiences and ways to reach those audiences. Um, that's on my, uh, my, my paid side, I guess. Uh, as a volunteer, uh, as you said, I'm a part of the Coalition of 100 Black Women here in Central Ohio, and I chair the board for the Central Ohio African American Chamber of Commerce, which is why I'm here today. Um, I do other volunteer work around the community, but um, that chamber, COAC, is super close to my heart, um, as is the coalition and um, other places I'm able to, to lend support or expertise. And why do you do that, Jill? Um, you know what? I don't. I don't know that I have a choice. It was funny. I was listening to you talk about your uh, the generational entrepreneurship in your family, and I think in my family it was community service. Um, I saw my mother 
working. My mother was a union organizer, and then she worked in the Poor People's Program. Then she, uh, you know, worked on political campaigns, and she was in the coalition. It wasn't the coalition in Toledo. It was the, oh gosh, the National Council Mm-hmm. in Toledo, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, she was in in all these clubs, and it was just always about community for her. And so um, I, I don't know that I felt that I had a choice, and it wasn't something that I said, okay, I'm going to be just like my mom and do it. But um, when the time came to join organizations or to volunteer or to, to lend or to write checks or whatever, um, it's hard to shake your background, right? It's hard to... Um, to not do what you were taught was important. And you know what? Your mom and my mom looking down saying, good job. My mother good took job. me with her every time she went to take care of some kind of social cause. She had me right there with her, even on walks. When you're walking and, you know, mm-hmm. campaigning, there I was with her. And I think that's that modeling that we yes. do, and I've, I can see that with you and Avery, but but yeah. I think that's what may be missing in later generations is that mm-hmm. um, I'm going to show you what life is all about rather than tell you. Well, you know what? The other part of it is, is um, and it may be a consequence of upward mobility, right? So our parents took us because they didn't have any options. You That's can't true. leave a house full of, you couldn't leave them alone, right? So right. they had to put us in the car and take us. I remember um, driving around Toledo one Saturday with my mom and Gloria Steinem. My oh mom my. Um, was the person who was tasked with uh, being Gloria Steinem's body person or, you know, the person who drove her around and mm-hmm. made sure she made her event. And we were in the back seat making paper flowers because after she got done with Gloria Steinem, a friend of hers was having a party or a wedding at a community center. And I'm telling my age, but we decorated with these paper flowers. You would take toilet paper and um, fold them and fluff them or whatever. So the back seat was like full of these paper flowers. Gloria Steinem was helping us make paper flowers as mom was driving her around Toledo for whatever appearances she was making that day. Um, I remember my mother not having what we called poor people clothes, which is such a bougie thing to say, but she didn't have jeans and stuff. And so we were in the kitchen one day, like trying to break down jeans and jean jackets because she was about to get, she was leaving for a poor people's march. And we were going to stay with my grandma, but we had to get her clothes together because she didn't have clothes that that fit, you mm-hmm. know, into the occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember having uh, every Sunday night we would hang out at the Black Panther Party headquarters. And so, of course, we had our, you know, denim jackets and our black turtlenecks and our tans and whatever. Uh, but that's what we did on Sunday nights. And the first people that ever fed me breakfast in school were Black Panthers. And so... But it's by osmosis that I saw that. But if my mom had had the capability or the desire to hire a babysitter, Mm -hmm. then we would have missed. We would have missed all that. Mm -hmm. Right. We Mm -hmm. wouldn't have we wouldn't have seen all of that. And um, I was watching a documentary about the Panthers and they featured the Toledo headquarters. I was so excited. I bet you were. How did you get to Columbus? (laughs) A job. I uh, was working in Cincinnati at a radio station and. 
had worked in Toledo at a radio station, but the company that owned the stations, I think, they had a general manager in common or some manager in common. And when uh, a position opened up here in Columbus at BKO, uh, he said he called me to see if I wanted to come and work for uh, the news director at the time, who was then James Evans. And um, I did. So that's how I got here. Well, we're glad you're here. Now, tell us about the origin of the African-American Chamber. Uh, So we are not the first iteration of the chamber here in Columbus, but uh, there have been, and Avery is on the line, and she'll chime in if I uh, misstate it, but there have been several other attempts to stand up an African-American chamber. And so the board members of the last one um, got together uh, in 17 and decided they wanted to try to stand up the organization again. And they spent time in the quiet phase, which is probably the smartest place that we spend time when we're standing up a business. And uh, they established this one, uh, and we launched in 2018. And what do you mean by quiet phase? So uh, this, this, the time when you do the back of the house, you know, you want to start a business, and you have this great idea, and you have part of what you need to start it, but you're not ready to take your service or your product to market. And you are spending time then um, working on back of the house, working on the quiet phase and before you launch that business, before you're actually ready to take that business to market. I love that term. I think we need to do that with a lot of big decisions. We need to do that with all of our big decisions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that you don't jump into something that you're not ready for. Yeah, I I like that. I like that. So what's the purpose? So the purpose was to and is to be a voice for uh, Black-owned business. You know, there uh, wasn't one, a centralized voice that that simply advocates on behalf of Black-owned business, unapologetically Black-owned, not minority, not diverse Black. And so that is what we do, and that was the void um, that we wanted to fill, and that's the void we fill. We advocate, um, we promote, we make sure that somebody who looks, or try to make sure that somebody who looks like us is at the table. But probably the most important thing we do is is raise awareness about operating in the collective. It is about doing business together. It is about um, really being for black-owned business. And which is not to say that you're against some other kind of business. Uh, We reject that premise. You can be pro without being anti, right? Absolutely. So we are are pro-black owned business. And uh, we hope that our presence in the marketplace um, encourages us to do business together. We hope it encourages uh, procurement opportunities. We hope it encourages access to capital, which is a big deal. Um, but the big part is is we hope that it, it encourages that mindset that values the collective. What's the profile of your typical member? So our typical member has been in business about eight years. I'm sorry, about 15 years. Wow, they that's employ, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good lifespan. And they employ, on average, about eight people. Um, they are, we're just, under half and half male female i think we tick a little higher uh with male owned businesses but not much if it's 
anything, it might be 5248, you know, male, female. Uh, most of our companies operate in the business and commute consumer services space. Uh, so, but that also includes um, our corporate members, you know, so we've got, and our older members. So when we talk about an eight-year lifespan, we're talking about um, EE Ward that's been around for 130 years that's a member, and we're talking about um, a company that might have started, uh, you know, a year ago. So, you know, it averages out to that um, 15 years. Um, and what programs are available to such a wide variety of, of businesses? I'm, I'm sure that you've got food and, and service and construction. And what programs do you offer these businesses? Well, we really don't do a ton of programming beyond educational and networking. Uh, but we do do access to other programs. You know, there are in Columbus so many uh, free resources, you know, from startup and management and technical assistance to, to this or to that. And so we try to be a resource or a centralized place that people can come and get information about that. Um, we also do, you know, trainings and, and, and webinars and uh, we're not obviously like everybody else. We weren't able to do much in person over the past 15 months. Uh, but we still did did membership meetings online, which turned into they turn into sort of networking sessions, and we may have um, you know this idea of putting people together, and so we may have a bigger member or a corporate member come in and talk about how to do business with them. Uh, I think the first one we did that with when we were still in person was Franklin County Children's Services, and at the end of the session there were a couple of our members who walked out with contracting opportunities. Because sometimes, whether you're, if you're big, you're public, you're corporate, you want to do business with black-owned companies, but you don't necessarily know how to reach them, or you think that they'll just come to you by osmosis and know, um, I don't know how you think they'll know it, but they'll just know automatically how to do business with you, um, when sometimes it is as simple as entering into a relationship with those companies and saying, here is, uh, here are the widgets we buy, here are the services we contract for, um, and this is the person that you go to to make sure he has your capability statement, to make sure he has your information. Um, so we've done sessions like that with Children's Services. We did our last one with uh, our member First Merchant Bank. They're increasing their profile here in Columbus, and they wanted to uh, know you know, who was out there, who they should be calling on, um, and, and bump up their list of black-owned uh, vendors. And so we did a session like that with them. Um, I'm trying to think of who else we've done it with. We do uh, bankers' roundtables. So last year, uh, people were saying, uh, they would come into our meetings and they would say, if you want these PPP dollars, if you want this assistance or this help, you really need to talk to your banker. You really need to be in a, have a good relationship with a banker. And we started thinking about that. What does that look like? And you telling me that I should have a good relationship with a bank is sort of like you telling me that I'm a can of paint. If I don't know what it means mm -hmm. to have a good relationship with a bank, then how do I nurture that? And so we started doing um, bankers roundtables where we would bring in bankers from different banks and they would talk about their products, their services, and they will let our members just pick their brains and ask questions. And so we've done 
three of those sessions so far. We work with the Columbus Empowerment Corporation to present them. Uh, the last one, I think, was uh, around real estate and property. But um, so that kind of, uh, of programming we found to be very uh, important just to make sure that you have access to these contracting opportunities. Jill, um, we're going to need to take just a very brief break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about post-pandemic conditions of Black-owned businesses. We'll be right back. We're back. We are chatting with Jill Frost, the executive director of the um, Black African-American Chamber of Commerce here. Sorry about that. African-American Chamber of Commerce in Central Ohio. And Jill, I want to put this question to you. You mentioned collaboration. In this environment, there is discrimination against most non-white businesses. Would you consider collaborating with Asian businesses or transgender businesses or Hispanic businesses um, to reach a, a certain goal? Oh, absolutely. Um, because um, it seems like uh, there are attempts politically to keep everybody kind of down under and uh, sometimes it takes bringing everybody that's in the same boat to the table to try to get something done. So I was just thinking about that because I I worked with a variety of different minority businesses and they seem to have the same challenges at this point. So let me let me transition. 2020 was rough because some businesses had to shut down because of the pandemic, lost their customers, lost employees. And um, right now there is a fight for survival for some. And then on the other hand, there are some businesses that have been granted large contracts to do huge projects and are having some difficulty finding the people or the working capital to actually be successful. So um, tell us what you're hearing from your clientele about the, the atmosphere now for recovery from the pandemic. So one of the things that, um, and we're hearing what you, you just spoke to, but the other thing is, um, what we saw in 2020, we have always seen, but the pandemic shined this light on it. I mean, this really harsh light on it, right? Um, that sort of forces those who are in position to to even the playing field, in position to create equity. Um, it sort of forced them at least into the conversation. I don't know that that conversation lasts over time. I don't know that things will go back to the way they were. Um, But they were this way before um, the pandemic, minus, you know, the the health crises and all of that. Um, We have always had inequity. 
And the, the things we, we did before pandemic to remediate, uh, we probably have to do more of and be better at. You talked about collaboration. Um, we know that there are some government agencies now that are trying to, um, to eliminate the barriers to, to, to getting a big contract by allowing people to, like unbundling them, I think is the term, um, so that, that, that a smaller company can, can get a piece of a big contract, uh, but that was underway before the pandemic because it was a problem before the pandemic. The barriers that are there, and I'm not trying to, to minimize the pandemic, but I just think it's important that um, that we say to, to our colleagues uh, who may not look like us that the challenges were, were pre-pandemic challenges. Now everybody's sort of thinking about it and talking about it, but there were challenges that we talked about and saw all the time um, that have now been sort of a light has been cast on those things. Well, I think the difference between post-pandemic and pre-pandemic was um, not realizing that you have to have reserves for the unexpected. Right. But you know what's funny? If, and I know that you probably tell people this all the time or told them in the before time, um, you need three to six months in reserve, right? We were told, we, we've been taught that. Absolutely. Well, the pandemic has so far lasted, what are we now in months? Right, mm-hmm. or month 15, right. depending right. on how you count. That, I, I, that makes it unprecedented, obviously. Um, and, but the other part I think that is kind of that has been helpful is that there are programs that have been stood up um, during the pandemic designed to help black and minority firms, you know, with grants. You know, before this happened, we never heard. In fact, when people would come to you, when they would come to us and say, you know, I'm a business owner and I want a grant. We like get out of here. There are no grants for business mm-hmm. owners. You just you don't know what you're talking about. Well, today there are how many grants on the street for for business owners, right? We have, that, that has been, uh, that is different. There are a lot of um, agencies and entities that have been trying to put money on the street to help remediate some of what happened um, during the pandemic, you know, in grant dollars and, and that kind of thing. So that's different as well. And I think it's different also because the government jumped in and, and facilitated mm-hmm. the grants at the bank. But, but here's another dilemma. Um, that I'd like for your to get your uh, take on. When I counsel my clients, I don't tell them to put all their eggs in one basket anymore. We have a business model maybe that's working now, but if another virus or another whatever in this world comes and lands on your doorstep, it would be great if you had another bag of tricks another business model, another idea, something else that was already ready to go so that you didn't end up with your pockets empty. Like I'm advocating now for at least two business models at the same time. You can put more emphasis on one, the one that's going to give you the most return. But if that falls short, you need to have another, another activity to generate income. What's your comment on that? 
Well, I think that there was always this um, this mindset. We say it anyway. I'm not sure we always mean it, but that you need to have multiple streams, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, we have to figure out how to monetize the side hustle, mm-hmm. how to how to make that thing real. So maybe you're not ready to leave your your nine to five, but um, are you putting any time? and effort into the side hustle. Mm -hmm. It's something that you've always known you wanted to do. What are you investing in it in terms of time and talent? Uh, Maybe that's that thing that you ought to have sort of in the cut, you know, in case something happens. Uh, You're right. We don't, there may not be another pandemic uh, around the corner, but something is around the corner. Uh, There's always something, but this was so big that, Maybe it won't ever happen again, but I feel like we should be ready. This kind of taught us that we should be ready for the whatever. Absolutely. I um, I told people, I said, in my life, I've never seen a period so destitute and so um, negative from so many different angles that I'm just thrilled that we can just go outside now, even though I know what the problems could come back. Um, having to see those businesses just shut down immediately when they said no more open doors had to be horrific for those mm-hmm. families. Um, and so I hope that we don't get to that point again, but but learn from it. And I, and I believe this. If you're the same person or you have the same business today, that you had two years ago, shame on you. Should have learned something about having uh, resources available to be able to pivot. That's a new word in business, pivot into something different so you can stay afloat. Mm -hmm. But we did see a lot of companies pivot. We saw um, new startups that came, you know, in response to, to what mm-hmm. was needed in the moment, mm-hmm. um, which is which is heartening. You know, we saw companies um, do what sort of fill voids in the market because there was a point at which um, I think, and, and this is before all the help was put out on the street, uh, there was this, this point where nobody's coming. You know, nobody is coming to save us. And so, you know, maybe I need to make face masks. How many people did we see uh, selling face masks? Because they weren't available. Mm-hmm. And so somebody stepped into that void. We saw, um, you know, beverage distillers start doing hand sand because somebody needed to step into the void. Um, and so there's an ingenuity and there's, um, there is something kind of beautiful about the entrepreneurial spirit. Doesn't mean that life is easy for an entrepreneur, but there is something quite amazing and quite different um, about the entrepreneurial mindset. And I think that's what we're going to hold on to for the future. And speaking of the future, we're going to transition here and talk to Miss Frost um, in another version, another generation. Is Miss Avery Frost available? Good afternoon. I'm here. 
Hi. Oh, you were able to unmute faster than I was. Oh. <laughs> let, let me just introduce Miss Avery Frost. And it's not a coincidence that they have the same last name. These are two um, women, mother and daughter, who are knee-deep in entrepreneurship and the community. And we are just delighted to have both of them here today. And how are you doing, Miss Avery? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. It's been awesome just listening to the two of you go back and forth chatting so far. You know, because we're old and we have wisdom, <laughs> right, Jill? We have a that lot is of right. wisdom. <laughs> um, yes. and, and, and you all better hold on to us because we Thank have you. a filter for information that only comes from living a long time. So, any rate, Jill, I mean, excuse me, Avery, what is your role at the Urban League? All right, yes, so um, I am program manager for our Minority Small Business Resiliency Initiative. Uh, basically, um, short answer, we were stood up in April of last year to be a direct COVID response for small minority-owned businesses to help them figure out how to navigate through the whole pandemic process. And what were the problems they were having? Um, similarly to a lot of the things that you all have uh, talked about so far, um, first of all, total uncertainty. Like nobody knew um, how long this was going to last, what uh, law changes they're going to have to deal with, are they going to have to shut down forever, right? Nobody knew what that looked like. So the uncertainty was huge. But then um, close second or was the lack of, of capital. Um, so if everything is shutting down, where am I going to – I can't get sales. Our businesses are great at like making a way out of no way. If I at least if I could sell something, I could keep it going, right? Um, but without the stores open and then not having solidified banking relationships, even though there was this great federal program with the Paycheck Protection Program, accessing it was there was a big question mark. So we walked people through applications, uh, just even seeing if they're eligible. Like over time, in the first couple months, we talked to maybe 200 entrepreneurs. 100 of them were eligible. 50 of them we got approved. But that was 150 other people who never got approved. And so we were continuing to work with them to try to identify grants, working capital loans, other things that they could get to keep their businesses open. And and for the audience, working capital loans are cash that you borrow to pay your bills to keep you going from day to day. It's um, exactly. current assets minus current, current liabilities for you accounting people. Um, what kind of what kind of businesses came in uh, asking for help? What industries were hurt the worst? Uh, consumer services, for sure. So we're talking about beauty, barber, restaurants, uh, clothing stores, retail operations, um, because they didn't have a quick, easy way to pivot in some cases. Like if they didn't already have online sales, um, they really did have to shut down entirely. Um, so figuring out that shutdown and restart, we dealt with that with a lot of people. But every industry was hit very hard because if we're looking at data, our businesses have difficulty getting capital from banks across the industry, across time and business, across employee size. Um, we, we get it less at a, a lower rate than other businesses. And so people came into the pandemic already on edge. Um, and so this just like exponentially made it worse. Was it a was it a, a more men than women or more young startup businesses? Can you can you tell me who was coming through the doors asking for help? Yeah, to start, it was more women than men. Uh, we probably, I would say, 75% women in the first like quarter or two quarters. 
um, as words start to spread that what we were doing was working, then we start seeing more men come in and asking for assistance. Um, there are there are businesses who maybe five years or less. The older businesses did come along, but not into the fall. Um, to, they're like, can you do anything for me? This is where I'm at. Um, but it was, and then the startups, that was crazy. Like, um, as mom mentioned, businesses are starting up in a really high rate. And so once we got to July of last year, we started having these like brand new startups. Like I started my business yesterday. Is there anything you can do for me? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because the business, seriously, but the entrepreneurship was less scary than the unemployment line where you, you might've been on a, a, a waiter or something, or maybe you were just kind of side hustling anyways. And you couldn't get unemployment like the independent contractors couldn't get unemployment for like the first six months. Uh, and so they were like, maybe I could go out and sell something instead. Uh, that's quicker than me waiting t- for the government. Um, so we had a whole bunch of new startups. We, I keep seeing them to this moment. People, new startups are coming in. Yeah. I decided to just try my own way because that it must be better. Um, I have one question and we're going to have to take another break and come back and talk about some of the programs, business plans. If there was ever a topic over my career that I have probably preached about is having a business plan. Did you require that for your startup businesses to get this funding? Well, the startups can get funding because they, they, uh, they hadn't been in business long enough. Um, so, yes, we're demanding that they have a business plan because at least if you have a business plan and model, we can sell that. But if you don't have a business plan, you can't even walk up to a bank. Now, I don't care how long you've been in business. Um, you have to have a business plan. And I tell them, I said, the business plan is for an investor like a bank or someone else, but it's for you too. If, mm-hmm. if you have mm-hmm. a, a challenge ahead, you need to have an answer to that challenge before it happens. So when you put together a business plan, you're not only doing it for someone else to believe in your business, you've got to believe in your business. Case in point, and then I'll let it go. A restaurant that I called on as a banker man just running around crazy when i came to visit him washing dishes putting the dishes on the table cooking the food and i am just afraid to even go in he's moving so fast and i'm saying why would you invite me here if you don't have time to talk to me so he's telling me the business model and i said well what happens when you don't feel good when you're sick dead silence i didn't make that loan because he hadn't thought out how he was going to duplicate management if he wasn't there so in any event let's take another quick break and come back and talk to the frost women about programs and um, resources for post-pandemic businesses We are back with um, two experts in entrepreneurship, Jill Frost and Avery Frost. And we're talking now about PPP programs and resources. And for those of you that do not know this acronym, it's the Payment Protection Program that was initiated by the Small Business Administration, funded by the government, to attempt to um, resuscitate some businesses as well as revive others. And so um, 
Miss Avery, can you kind of tell us what that PPP uh, looks like on the ground? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the interesting thing about that PPP program, um, it's based entirely on your payroll or wages or money that you pay to the business owner. So when we're talking about um, black and minority-owned businesses and their ability to get that, unfortunately, a lot of our businesses don't have W-2 employees, right? Uh, we have um, contractors, but we don't have um, actual people on W-2 payroll. So the Paycheck Protection Loan averages for black and minority-owned businesses were much lower. But that's not to say if they re if they reopen uh, that program uh, with this new American Rescue Plan, um, I still say if you're if you think you might be eligible, you should look into it or call someone like my program at the Urban League um, for us to talk you through it. Because a number of these programs and grants, it literally is free money as long as you do what you're what the, what you're supposed to. And in this 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 market, you should take it. Like don't be. Um, don't be afraid to take that help if you are eligible for it. What if you didn't show a loss? Are you still eligible? If it is your first time getting the Paycheck Protection Program loan. Um, and that was the difference in that second round that happened earlier this year. If you had gotten the PPP last year, uh, you could apply again. But if you didn't show a loss, it wouldn't be forgiven. So you could get the money, but it wouldn't be forgiven and turn into a grant. But if you've never gotten that loan previously... And you didn't show a loss in 20 or 21, um, you could you could still apply for it. That that qualification only applies if you've received the money more than once. Who makes the decision of whether or not you get it or not? The Small Business Administration and the bank that you're applying through. Uh, so the banks were pre um, kind of uh, pre-approving or denying people based on the program eligibility requirement. As long as you met those requirements and you had to go through a bank to apply. But as long as you met those requirements, they would submit your application to the Small Business Administration. And as long as you met every eligibility requirement, and they did remove a couple of pain points that <laughs> kept our businesses out of it, like things with criminal history that had nothing to do with your ability to manage money, um, kept you from getting a loan in the first round. But in the second round, those kind of barriers were removed. And so it was easier to access uh, mostly. It, sorry, yeah. The whole thing was very, they kept changing the law. Every other week, the law would change, the application would change, and we were shooting at moving targets. And then some business owners finally just said, you know what, I'm not even going to get enough money to go through all of this headache. Forget it. And they just leave the money on the table and walk away and say, I'll figure it out myself. Because the, the number of hurdles were high at the beginning. Um, I'm going to pause and give you some feedback on that with the clients that I've had. Some of them mm -hmm. are great running their businesses, but maybe they don't have formal educations. And when mm -hmm. we printed off the PPP program uh, criteria, I was embarrassed because I had trouble trying to understand the caveats in all the paperwork. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was just thinking, why didn't someone from outside the SBA or even outside the bank, look at the language and the format of these applications because uh, it was, in my opinion, it wasn't user-friendly. It wasn't, and it was, I think, 
like, you know, putting my COAC hat back on because as the executive director of COAC, I do advocate on things like this often. And that was a big part of our commentary that we had back and forth to elected officials and to the SBA was that you're making it difficult. You're making it mm-hmm. harder than it needs to be. Like, there's no reason. Like, if they provided you their taxes and they filled out this basic form, you're doing the rest of the, the digging anyways. Go go forth. But why put all of this, these things on top of it? It didn't make sense. And it, it really was. It wasn't just you. It was Because I struggle with it quite a bit. And the only reason that I became versed in the program was because of the volume of clients I was, at times, literally completing people's application. Like, just instead of, like, sending them off trying to figure it out and mm-hmm. say, okay, let's just sit down and go through this mm-hmm. question by question. If there was a question we couldn't answer together, we would, I would call the SBA, get the answer, and then I have it for the next person. But it, it was not it's, not, it's not an easy process. And I think it was apparent to me that that program wasn't intended for beauty shops and barber shops. Not at all. Not at all. Tell the audience why that was challenging. Well, most uh, beauty and barber shops are, they don't have employees. Uh, they may have, like the owner of the shop might have 10 people cutting and, and doing styles out of that shop, but they are independent contractors. Mm-hmm. And the SBA wanted them, all 11 people, the shop owner and the 10 contractors, to apply individually. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, it was not that helpful to the shop owner, who also probably didn't have compensation really to report in any sort of way. Um, and so the, there are a whole bunch of them who didn't even apply because at first they didn't even know they could. And then also with the unemployment confusion with independent contractors, they didn't go that route either, which is why you had beauty beauty uh, professionals and barber barbers cutting illegally at homes, at other people's homes during the pandemic when they shouldn't have been cutting, risking their lives because there wasn't relief for them. Absolutely. And just for the audience, an independent contractor is an individual that is their own income source and they pay rent to use that chair in a barber or a beautician shop and they take in their own money and they pay rent to be there. But there is no salary. There's no taxes taken out of their compensation. That's all on them. However, the business owner still has rent to pay for that entire operation. Um, Utilities has to cover all the overhead for those independent contractors. And it's, it was just kind of uh, twisted because the, um, the, the business owners didn't really get the, um, the, I guess the impact of what they were trying to do. They couldn't put it down on an application to keep the doors open. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, outside of PPP, now that it's out and doing what it's supposed to do, I guess, are there any other resources that uh, African-American businesses can access at this point? Yeah, so actually this is well-timed. On Tuesday, the state of Ohio opens up four new grants. Um, and even one of them is for new businesses. Uh, of course, there is funny restrictions like the new business has to have at least two W-2 employees, which is like what startup has two W-2 employees mm-hmm. within 14 months of starting. No. Um, so I don't know who they're going to get to take that money. Um, but there is some for like a restaurant, uh, entertainment venues, including like spaces where people rent out uh, spaces for events. So businesshelp.ohio.gov has that information. You could pre-read up on that those grants before they open up on Tuesday to see if you're eligible. Um, we are going to have, we should be having another grant coming out 
hopefully over the summer through the Columbus Urban Link specifically. And so the best way for people to to get the information is to go to our website, cul.org, and click Entrepreneur Center. There are two programs, my program, as well as the Minority Business Assistance Center. And between our programs, the information about grants comes straight through us, and we disseminate it directly out to our clients. And so if there may not be something open right this millisecond, um, but we're hearing about things all the time. And so the county is looking at another grant. The city of Columbus is looking at another grant for small businesses within the county or city limit. And so those things we all expect to be coming out. They're just trying to figure out which mechanisms and how they're going to do it. But it was part of the American Rescue Act. And so that's coming. Uh, but then, like, there, Hello Alice is a website where there are a whole bunch of grants all the time that are posted. Uh, and there can be nationwide grants or uh, location-specific. Um, but really, it's, I'm not, this, I never thought I would say this in a million years. But if you go Google Business Grants Ohio, a bunch will actually pop up this time. Yeah, that's something um, that's new, new with this, with this uh, <laughs> decade. We didn't used to have grants. Um, Never. Definitely not in Columbus. Right, right. Okay, um, in our last few minutes, tell me as a potential uh, client, what kind of paperwork do I need to get one of these grants or a, a forgivable loan? You're going to have to have your taxes completed for at least the year 2020. Um, some of them are using 2019, but I can't tell you. There's so many people who were un- ineligible because they didn't hadn't their, had their taxes done. Uh, but if you have your taxes done, we can make the rest of it work. Um, but they want to see like a, sometimes a profit and loss statement, uh, your ins and outs over a, over the year. Um, they also want to see really just they'll ask questions on an application. How has COVID impacted your business? You need to be able to tell what your sales were or weren't. And how did they compare to the year 2019 or previous, if you were open then? Um, really, it's, besides the taxes, it's most important that you know your business. And we could fill in the gaps for other stuff. We have three business coaches in my office that are literally here for this particular purpose. So we can figure out who you are, where you're at, and then what you're eligible for and help you walk through those things. Not just grants and loans, but also minority business certifications, uh, registering to be vendors with different organizations, a whole number of things. Um, so... But very, at very least, if you're trying to get a grant with one of these relief programs, you've had to have submitted your taxes, your business taxes. Um, Avery, I have to ask you this, and I'm almost afraid to ask. What about the credit score? Credit score doesn't matter on grants. Oh, that's good doesn't to matter. know. What about these forgivable yeah. loans? If it's a paycheck protection, your credit score is not supposed to matter. If it is an S, another SBA, Small Business Administration loan product, they do have credit requirements and like criminal background requirements. That they're like no history, recent history, and your credit score has to be, I think, 610 or 630 at the base. And even then, they still might give you some challenges. Um, and a lot of people were denied for like that IBO loan. If, you, if people heard about the economic injury disaster loan that was out last year. A lot of people were denied based on their credit score. And we're like, it's an emergency. Why is credit score even factored? Um, but that a lot of people were denied for that. Uh, oh, but I do I get to mention that the EIDL grant, E-I-D-L grant, the targeted grant, they're about to open that up for anybody who's in a low-income census tract. So most center city uh, businesses who are, whether you're home-based or not, and you're in the central city, 
um, you might be eligible for this. And that's, we're just waiting to see when that opens up. I think it was a $10,000 grant um, that people, anybody in one of those census tracts, if they can prove a COVID, uh, COVID issues or challenges, which everybody could, they're eligible for that. One of the, the discrepancies, I think, with credit scores is that a 600 in a pandemic versus a 600 in a period of, of economic prosperity means a totally <laughs> different thing. If you're yeah. able to get a 600 and you don't have a business that's open versus when things are going well, and see, that's what financial institutions don't get. They're still using the same old models from good mm-hmm. times and bad times. We only have one minute left, ladies, and I would like to have both of you give your um, contact information so the listeners can reach out to you for, for Jill and the, and the Chamber of Commerce membership, networking, opportunities to meet people, um, very important in business. So Jill, let, let's hear from you first. So um, we can be reached at info at coac.org. And um, we encourage everybody to go to the website, coac.org, C-O-A-A-C-C.org. You can learn about membership opportunities. You can learn about events and meetings that are coming up. And you can contact us that way if you uh, need anything of us, want more information. That's the simplest way to contact us. Thank you. And Ms. Avery? Yes, uh, to reach out to the Columbus Urban League, any of our business programs, just go to cul.org, and you will, um, you'll be able to find some information. And you can email businesscenter at cul.org, any questions that you might have, and we'll get you uh, taken care of. Thank you, ladies, so much for joining me today. Um, you all are important people in this community and um, if there's anything that I can do to help you out please let me know because I'm a big advocate for entrepreneurship Um, we are at the end of the show and I thank all of you who listened in for coming today I hope Dr. Joe is okay she'll be back with us next week and for now I will say farewell from the window have a good week